Hello, this is Monday, January the 10th. This is the Andrew Pearce Show coming as ever from the Daily Mail Newsroom. Coming up, we're talking about the skeleton that's been found. It's quite a fossil. It's 180 million years old. And it was found at Rutland Water Nature Reserve. Also, the cost of living crisis. I'm talking to leading Tory MP. What has the government got to do as fuel prices soar, food prices soar, and national insurance is about to go up too? The leading professor who says the widespread testing for COVID is now becoming an act of national harm. But first, the anti-vaxxer group, a Daily Mail reporter, goes undercover to work out exactly what they're up to. They sound very sinister, but are they, in fact, just a bunch of clowns? A militant anti-vaxxer group called Alpha Men Assemble is organising training sessions for activists who want to target vaccine centres, schools, the police, with volunteers trained by army veterans. A Daily Mail investigation reporter infiltrated the group's training at a park in Staffordshire. He came across a former Royal Fusilier, Danny Glass, who led the session and called on supporters of the group, which has, astonishingly, 7,000 subscribers on the social media network Telegram to, quote, take it to the old bill. I'm joined now by Miles Dilworth, who went undercover with these guys. Um, They look sinister because, um, Miles, they're teaching people what they say to get ready for war. Sinister speeching, kickboxing classes. Are they really going to try to disrupt uh, people being vaccinated? Well, that's certainly what they said at at the meet. They're going to target vaccine centres, schools, colleges. Uh, One of them said take it to the director of public health in every area. Um, But they were aware that they were being monitored by the police. And it was only really when... The, uh, the officers on duty sort of retreated to a, a, a safe distance that they sort of gathered everyone round and basically said, we're going to take it to the old bill. So it, it sounds like it's the police that is yeah. their main target. And uh, they said they're going to do a professional job on them. They also get there were also exercises in how to break police lines. So that's when there's a lineup of police, presumably to protect people from uh, militant demonstrations how they can how they showing them these anti-vaxxers how they can break the police cordon yeah so this irish drill instructor called gary uh, who claimed to have 15 years experience working in the military and counter-terrorism took us on these marching formations and we practiced flanking maneuvers uh, and basically to sort of line up in a line that he said would demonstrate if you if you can get in basically this setup you can burst through a police line and they can't control it and he he sort of you know jokingly hinted oh you know i'm not saying that that we'll do this because we're a peaceful organization but uh there was certainly a a sinister undertone to it all and he may well have just been saying that because he was aware that police were uh yeah. were, were t- keeping a careful eye on uh, on proceedings you make the point too that they mock anti-vaccine protesters like Piers Corbyn, who's, of course, the brother of the former Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn, are standing in the park while they say alpha men assemble, purport to offer what they say is, quotes, pure, unadulterated defiance. It almost sounds like they're paramilitary. almost sounds like what they're proposing is illegal, Miles. Is it? Well, they are very insistent that all the actions they will undertake are lawful, 
but that is of course their their public stance but if they are of course planning to disrupt aggressively disrupt uh the vaccine rollout whether that be at schools vaccine centers then certainly they are will be monitored closely by police if they stray into any all unlawful direct actions They've only been a setup in the last month. How did they make themselves known to each other? I suppose the dreaded internet. Yeah, well, well, that's a good question. We know that the one of the group leaders, uh, ex-Royal Fusilier Danny Glass, was previously associated with a group called Veterans for Freedom, um, which had a similar outlook, sort of anti-vaccine, anti-establishment, um, hardline outlook on on the protest movement, and there may well have been some that that group has since disbanded. But there may well have been some uh, networking that has gone on from there, because certainly the ringleaders all seem to have military backgrounds. And then you set up a Telegram channel, get a bit of buzz, and suddenly you've got seven thousand subscribers. Amazing. They're called Alpha Men Assemble. Does that mean they don't want women or women are far too sensible to have nothing to do with them? Uh, Well, there were, it was a largely white male, middle-aged crowd of of more than 100 or so activists, I'd say, on Saturday. Around, I'd say around a dozen of those were women. um, And they were keen to stress at the beginning despite the controversy around their name, that they weren't a male-only organisation, but there is certainly a, a hyper-masculine uh, feel to the, to the entire group. I think it's appalling. Look, one of these people you quote in here, she says, this is one of the women, charming. She says, we need to hit the schools, head teachers, colleges, counsellors, police, directors of public health in every area. None of us are going to take quotes the bleep bleep jab, and none of our families are. You'd think that the people were having the jabs um, forced on them, the way this lot are carrying on. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I think that's kind of where their their grip on reality slightly falls down. and They seem to think that there is some kind of mandatory vaccination going on in this country, which, which obviously is, is not the case. But, but, I mean, they're full of other conspiracies as well, so it's yeah. not entirely surprising. They look sinister, but are they, in fact, you spent, uh, uh, what, how long were you with them? 20, uh, a couple of days were you with them? Um, just, just the day. Just day, the okay. Day on so was your view at the end that they're deeply sinister, uh, or perhaps your view was that they're a bunch of idiots? Or a bit of both? Uh, yeah, a bit, I think there's definitely a bit of both going on there. Um, certainly the, there's, a, there's a very clownish almost dad's army feel to a lot of what was going on on Saturday. But um, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't dismiss the kind of core group, the kind of the hardcore group mm. and, and their kind of sinister intentions. There may well be a lot of um, sort of misfit uh, hangers-on that, that kind of give it a whole sort of clownish, yeah. um, slightly bedraggled, disorganised feel but i I wouldn't dismiss that kind of hardcore element to it and you wouldn't want to get into a uh, into a spat with former royal fusilier danny glass who you quote extensively in the piece to photograph of him he's a bit of a bruiser isn't he you you wouldn't want to get on the wrong side of a of of a punch bag with with danny no No, i don't think so now you've got to be careful here miles because we don't want them coming after you (laughs) 
I think I think I'll be all right, but fingers crossed. Yeah. Oh, all right. Well, look, it's a great piece. Double page spread in the mail today. If you haven't read it, you should. Um, it, the headline is "Anti-Vax Rebel Threatening Chaos Amid Fight to Get Britain Jabbed" by Miles Dilworth, um, who's gone undercover. Great stuff. Visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces, and much more. If you want to get in touch, tweet us at mailplus or me at Tory Boy Pierce. So the policy of, quote, obsessive COVID screening using lateral flow tests has lurched into mass hysteria, says Professor Angus Dalgleish in a powerful piece in today's Daily Mail. Professor Dalgleish, who is an oncologist at a London teaching hospital, believes it's tantamount to national self-harm and is crippling transport hundreds of thousands of British businesses, not to, not to mention the impact on the NHS. He joins me now. Professor Dalgleish, um, you make the point, it doesn't matter how much we test people, there is absolutely no way we can stop the spread of Omicron, and in any case, it's very mild. That is totally the major point. I mean, it became evident to me that people were catching uh, Omicron before Christmas and uh, afterwards, in spite of taking extreme measures, I mean, making sure everybody showed proof of double vaccination and a negative uh, flow test before having uh, just light lunches, midday lunches, and you know, not nightclub parties. And yet they were still all going down with it in the next 48 hours, five five days, which uh, just makes a mockery of uh, trying to uh, isolate and prevent it. The good news is that it is so infectious that it's only causing mild symptoms. And it seems to be uh, only causing mild symptoms even in those who are unvaccinated. That's mainly data from South Africa. So why on earth would you destroy your economy and shut down all your core industries and small businesses for what is something that's so infectious, it's uh, probably more infectious than most colds and flu, yet only causes roughly the same amount of uh, symptoms. And um, most people I know who've suffered have only uh, had a couple of days' worth of, of minor irritating things, which if it wasn't for the test, they would have thought it was the cold. Yeah, I, I spe- think that's the important thing. Yeah, I spoke to a colleague today and said, how are you, back from COVID, having isolated for seven days? said, I didn't have a single symptom. But because of this wretched insistence on all being tested all the time, he had to isolate for seven days because it said he had COVID. He said not a single symptom did did he suffer. Yes, I'm sure that's the case with probably the majority. I mean, I'm plagued with it here in, in my work is that, uh, that we've had two out of uh, four of, uh, we're talking about people less than 50 who work in lab work, basically haven't been able to come in the whole of last week because they tested positive over the Christmas period, even though they'd only been with their immediate family, like their parents and uh, siblings. Uh, so it just shows you just how, how infectious it was they're very cautious people and yet they couldn't come to work so I've lost a complete week from half the people who should have been here and I'm sure people up and down the country can uh, relate to that and say I'm suffering the same thing too I mean, I'm suffering. I can't. I cannot go into meetings in town to Victoria, which is my railhead, because mm. there's been no trains there due to no. staff testing positive with COVID. Absolutely. You also make the point in your article that six billion pounds. It's almost like a license to print money. This pandemic, isn't it? I know these are difficult times, and the government um, uh, wanted to throw everything they could at vaccinations and tra- test and trace. But six billion pounds has been spent on these kits, and you make the point: how much more could have been saved if the tests had been provided? 
provided to places where uh, identifying potential infections really matter, care homes, hospitals? Well, we would have saved billions, there's no doubt about it. I mean, the, to, to give a test free uh, at the point of wherever you want to pick it up, I think it's quite a, a ludicrous policy. It's something you might want to do if you have a very serious disease that kills 30% of people like Ebola or something. But this is not. It's actually, a, a, especially Omicron, it is a very, very mild disease. But let's look at the, the numbers. You just mentioned, you know, mm. the 6 billion. We mm. don't know how reiterating, recurring that number is. But just to put it in context, 6 billion is half of 12 billion, which is probably the monthly bill for the NHS before we started throwing even more money at it. It just gives you some kind of context of the enormous sums being spent for virtually minimal uh, returns. And the same thing could have been said about the 37 billion on the test and trace that was uh, lauded as world-class and, and successful, which basically was of retrospect very little use at all. Indeed, just finally, Professor Dalglish, we hear rumours that Boris Johnson now is coming round to um, an isolation period being reduced from seven days to five. Would you welcome that? I would welcome it, but even more so. Why not go to uh, three, two, yeah. one, zero? Yes. I mean, or not at all if you're not ill. Not at, not at all if you're not ill. And, you know, my attitude is that when I realised how infectious it was, I basically said everybody should throw away their masks, carry on as normal, infect yeah. as many people as possible, because this is the best natural immunity you're going to get. It's actually, I mean, studies from elsewhere, Israel and other places, have shown natural immunity is actually even better than vaccine immunity. And uh, so uh, when everybody's been exposed to this, they'll have a natural immunity on top of any other vaccine immunity they've had, which should make them very resistant to any other variants that come along. That's what I would argue if you look at the history of pandemics and how waves of variants go through. Indeed. That's uh, Angus Dalglish, Professor Angus Dalglish, who's written a very powerful piece about this in the paper today. Thanks for joining Visit melplus.co.uk to listen to The Andrew Pearce Show for free and in full, along with all our other podcasts and our video series. Don't forget to tell your Alexa speaker to play Daily Mail News. Senior Conservatives are piling the pressure on the Prime Minister to deal with the pain, the growing pain of soaring energy bills. And of course, we're going to have a tax rise. National insurance going up in April and personal allowances are being frozen. Robert Halfen is the Conservative MP for, Half for Harlow and he's chairman of the Commons Education Select Committee. He's described the cost of living crisis as the, quotes number one issue facing the Prime Minister. And by virtue of that, the number one issue facing the country. He joins me now. Robert Halfon, the Labour Party seem to be making all the running on this. They say there's going to be a windfall tax on energy companies, who they say are making a lot of money on the back of the huge hike in gas prices. They're also saying we should cut VAT on fuel, which, of course, the British government can do now because we've left the European Union. And yet the Prime Minister has certainly ruled out a, a cutting VAT and we've got no response to... Uh, any uh, calls from Tory MPs for what the government is going to do to try to come to terms with the, the cost of living crisis? Well, the first thing I'd say is that absolutely my constituents in Harlow are struggling to pay uh, their bills, uh, feed their families, clothe their families, and we have to do something as a government. I wouldn't accept that the Labour Party has made all the running. The government's increased the living wage, which will help people by thousands of pounds 
they've frozen uh, fuel duty, um, but they need to do a lot, a lot more. And the VAT on fuel, um, on energy bills, is one way which could help uh, working people. But there is a much a bigger elephant in the room, and that is the what's called the green levies, which is basically yeah. a tax on energy bills. Twenty-five percent of our electricity bills, two and a half percent of our gas bills and we're sending a billion pounds for a to a power station in the north of england uh, who import wood chippings to burn and uh, this is what this money is being spent on that has got to either be suspended reformed or have an escalator so if the international energy price goes sky high as it is at the moment mm. then the es- the green levies would be reduced substantially that um, would be, uh, it would seem to me, a very clever political thing to do. But is it difficult for a government to do that's just hosted the COP26 conference where they again pledged their commitment to a net zero economy? Well, we can't balance uh, the environmentalism on the backs of working people. And that is the problem with a lot of, of these kind of policies. It's, uh, it's often the, uh, the elites, and I'm not just talking about our government are talking about governments across the world who are telling people on low incomes how to live their lives, what cars they should drive, what boilers they should have, how much extra taxes they should pay. Now, those people are not affected by all these financial considerations, but working uh, people are. The government's doing a lot of the environment in terms of plastics, recycling, tree planting, and much more besides. People understand there are special circumstances. The gas price internationally is at record levels, unprecedented record uh, levels. And so if the government made a move like this, um, I think that the public would understand it. Despite everybody wanting us to be more green, they would accept it, but also uh, welcome it because this is about people's day-to-day livelihoods. And as I say, whether they are able to properly feed or clothe their family. What of the other element in the room, Mr. Alphon, um, the national insurance rise that's coming in in April? Uh, now, that's to fund um, work on reducing the NHS waiting list, which we know has uh, gone through the roof because of COVID, and also some of it will go towards social care. But it's deeply unpopular. It strikes me as not a conservative thing to do to raise national insurance. Uh, we're also freezing the um, personal allowances on income tax, which will also cost people. Should the, the Prime Minister overall his chance and say, actually, Mr Sunak, we can't do it this year. Perhaps another time. We'll have to find another way to find money for the NHS. Well, the problem for that vote, it was a very difficult vote for me in the House of Commons because it was a choice between the frying pan or the fire. Mm. Because at one time, on one side, you're voting to increase taxes for working people. On the other, you're voting to increase taxes, uh, sorry, funding for the NHS. And there is an umbilical core between the British people and the NHS. And I have used it all my life, and it is incredibly important to, to everybody. So what I would prefer instead the government to do is um, we have just cut the overseas aid budget by £4 billion. Yeah. Now, people argue whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Good thing Why in my view. Many people will agree with you. And why not use that £4 billion to cut taxes for the lower paid? Why not spend that money wisely? So you redistribute that money that was going overseas, even though our overseas aid budget is huge anyway, and give it to those on lower incomes. And I think that way, um, that would be very popular because at least then the public would know that overseas aid 
cut has been is being spent wisely. Very good point. And as opposed to just disappearing into some black hole or into p- reducing debt, I know we've got to reduce debt, Mr. Halfon, but when debt is at 2.3 trillion, four billion pounds will make very little difference there. So that would be a good way forward. Do you think it's something the Chancellor might be amenable to? I hope so, but we've got, because we've got to do something. I think that uh, I get all the green stuff. I understand why Boris mm. is doing it. But he won that election in 2019, not just because of Brexit. He came to constituencies like mine in Harlow, and he spoke for working people. They voted for him because he would, they thought he would give them security and prosperity. I'm a supporter of the Prime Minister, but I want him to be the Boris of the Boris of about security and prosperity and not just about the about the green agenda and I think if he does those things it will make a huge difference and, and we will get back on track given the mishaps over the past few weeks and months. Very good advice to the Prime Minister and the Chancellor that's from Robert Halfon who's the Conservative MP for Harlow and Chairman of the Commons Education Select Committee. Deputy Sports Editor Matt Gatford's here with the latest headlines. Well, Matt, they just about did it, didn't they, England? They held on for a draw, but it was nerve-wracking stuff. It certainly was, yeah. Finally, there was, uh, you know, a a little bit of joy for England. You shouldn't really look at it that way, should we, when England cling on desperately to scrape a draw and therefore avoid the... uh, the embarrassment of a 5-0 whitewash uh, in the ashes. They, they've managed to make it, uh, managed to draw the fourth test, so it's 3-0 with one to play. So, um, But it was certainly nerve-wracking. I mean, in many ways, it was the most exciting passage we've had in the uh, uh, in the ashes so far because all the other three tests have been so one-sided. Um, England were hanging on uh, on the on the last day. Then the, then the, the bowlers were bowling. There was the Final two batsmen left in Broad and Jimmy Anderson, the old veterans of the team. Then the light uh, deteriorated, so Australia had to bowl their spin bowlers. So you had uh, men round the bat. There was no way England could win, so the Aussies were trying to take the final wicket. And it came down to 39-year-old Jimmy Anderson having to uh, see out the final over and not lose his wicket in order that England escaped with a draw. So they can take some credit from that and what's been a, a very tough and horrible tour to have at least avoided a 5-0 and come away with uh, with one draw. So, you know, I know it's not much to crow about, but we can at least cling on to that. Exactly. Not much for you to cling on about with your favourite football team, Arsenal, getting stuffed in the third round of the FA Cup by a team from a lower division, Nottingham Forest. And I gather it's the second time they've done it to you, Matt. It is, yeah. I think they, they knocked us out. So Arsenal have only gone out in the third round twice in the last 25 years. And both times it's been at uh, at Nottingham Forest. So uh, they've obviously got something over over the Arsenal team and the Arsenal squad. But I must say they thoroughly deserved it. They were they were superb yesterday. Uh, they, uh, they put on a brilliant performance. A typical FA Cup tie where the big team goes to the smaller team. Uh, in terms of you know their positions, their relative positions in the leagues, and uh, one team's bang up for it. The crowd are behind them. There's passion. Uh, there's energy in this stadium, and the other team, the the Premier League team, in this case Arsenal, completely wilted and were completely outplayed. And it would have been an injustice, an injustice, if it hadn't been Nottingham Forest going through to the next round. So yeah, well done to them, and a pretty bleak performance by Arsenal. The Arsenal manager Arteta was very disappointed and uh, blamed a lack of. From the Arsenal players, which, as you know, when they're getting paid around a hundred grand a week, yeah. being hungry to play in a football game doesn't really uh, doesn't really cut the mustard, does it? 
Not really, not really. And just finally, the extraordinary story that keeps on giving. Novak Djokovic, he won that court case against the Australian government. He can play in the Australian Open, which kicks off next week. But then, of course, the government suggested the immigration minister may yet reserve their right to withhold the visa. Uh, Is that really likely, Matt? Because I'm told if that was the case, it would prevent Djokovic from playing in the Australian Open, not just this year, but for the next two years as well. Yeah, I mean, who knows? This story keeps changing, it keeps running, it keeps rumbling and it keeps giving. You're absolutely right. It's an incredible story. That still remains an option for the Aussies to, as you say, the immigration minister to uh, put to take this, this visa away from him and say, you know, you've got to leave the country. And as you say, yeah, that would mean he couldn't play in the next two or three years. Um, but he's out now of the hotel. He's practising uh, at the uh, at the Australian Open on the courts. You know, the pictures of him now on the court. So it would be incredibly harsh of them to turn around now and take his uh, and take his visa away. But there does remain some confusion over this positive test that he's got, which he was told, because you've tested positive within the last six months, yeah. you can come in. You, you, you know, that's how we can uh, give you the exemption. There now is some confusion over when exactly this uh, positive test was. There's been pictures of him out and about in Serbia, apparently in the days after this positive yeah. test, without a mask on. So that throws into question either he's just completely flouting the rules. There's lots of theories going around. In meanwhile, his family have given an extraordinary press conference again today, where his mother said it's been like torture for Novak. Um, and as it stands, he's, you know, as it stands at the moment, as we speak, he is going to be able to, to play on Monday, where he is evened almost pretty much to go and win the whole thing. And he wouldn't put it past him, would you, as long as he doesn't get that uh, visa revoked in the meantime. But as you say, an incredible story. There's been demonstrations in the streets of Melbourne. They've used tear gas to keep the uh, Aussie Serbians at bay. It's just extraordinary. I hope he gets knocked out in the first round. <laughs> well, it doesn't. Yes, I, I, I probably agree. I would like to see that happen as well. But whatever happens, it's going to be one heck of a circus around that first Certainly game. Certainly is. And that first game, when he hits the first ball, the crowd will boo and jeer him, and quite right too. They will. Yeah, they certainly will. It's going to be fascinating. It is. That's Matt Gatwood, who's always fascinating, Deputy Sports Editor of the Daily Mail. A giant sea dragon which roamed the oceans at the time of the dinosaurs has been uncovered in Britain. It's the largest of its kind. The 33-foot-long, and here we go with the pronunciation, Ichthyosaur skeleton, which is about 180 million years old, was found at Rutland Water Nature Reserve. So how significant is it? Dr Emma Nichols is Senior Curator of Natural Sciences at the Horniman Museum and Gardens, and she joins me now. Dr Nichols, it's caused quite a stir, this, hasn't it? It has, yeah. Um, it's all over the news today, uh, which is really exciting. Um, but that's because it's such an incredible find. It's really important. Uh, not only is it the largest near-complete ichthyosaur skeleton in the UK, um, but it's also the first confirmed record of this species anywhere in the world outside of Germany. How interesting. So what, we, did we suspect we never had any in this country? So there are about 100 species of ichthyosaur, right. and they vary quite widely in terms of uh, both body size and in terms of geographical range. Um, so the, the Great Britain is actually quite well known for marine reptiles. Uh, ichthyosaurs are 
a, a type of prehistoric uh, marine reptile. Sadly, there are none uh, around anymore, which is a real shame. <laughs> mm, yeah. Um, but they, um, there are a number of different species that we get here. Um, but we didn't, uh, before now, uh, we didn't know uh, Temnodontosaurus trigonodon, which is the uh, exact species we think it is uh, of ichthyosaur. We didn't know that we had it here. Now, it's really exciting the way they found it because it was spotted at the bottom of Rutland Water. Now, my understanding is um, conservationists were draining water uh, to improve the habitat for breeding birds. They saw at the bottom what at the bottom of the muddy reservoir what they thought were pipes, but then they discovered it was the full skeleton. They lifted it out with a tractor and the head, the head of this skeleton, was it almost a tonne? Um, yeah, sort of. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it was an amazing discovery. Joe Davis, the conservation team yeah. leader at Leicestershire Rutland Wildlife Trust, um, yeah, they thought it might be uh, a pipe, um, discovered it was vertebrae, and then they got uh, parts of a backbone. So they got in touch with my colleagues, um, Dean Lomax, Mark Evans, and Nigel Larkin, um, who went along for an initial um, survey and discovered that, uh, yeah, a lot more of the skeleton was there. Uh, so then we went back uh, for a full-scale excavation in August and September um, and in order to get the skeleton out without losing any of the scientific data of the environment and the invertebrate uh, animals that were found with it and all those sorts of things, we decided to wrap, for example, the skull that you mentioned, we wrapped the uh, skull in uh, putting it simply in a plaster jacket <laughs> right. uh, along with a lot of the um, the rock uh, the clay around it um, and when that was lifted out using um, yeah a JCV uh, it's it, the whole thing in terms of the the specimen the plaster jacket and the wooden uh, slats underneath to give it uh, some stability yeah over a ton and the body cavity um, which is about uh, a ton and a half, we reckon. Uh, we can't know for sure because actually we don't have access to anything that will weigh anything that heavy. <laughs> no, God. And what happens to it now, um, Dr. Nichols? Where does um, our skeleton go? At the moment, it's being carefully cared for uh, at a secret location right. uh, by specialist paleontological conservator Nigel Larkin. Uh, so the next stage of the project is to find funding um, to prepare and conserve the specimen. Uh, so the whole skeleton is still in sections. It's in 11 different plaster jackets. Yeah. Um, and they need to be um, very carefully, expertly prepared out. Um, and once, they've, um, once we've been able to do that, um, the, the hope for the future is that we'll be able to raise money to put it on public display fascinating and i know this is all going to appear all going to feature in the bbc2 program digging for britain tomorrow yes. night at 8, 8 p.m which is very exciting um how old do you think we know it was 180 million years it lived 180 million years ago dr nichols is there any way of telling how old the uh, sea dragon was i mean did they live for a very long time um, so of the 100 species, they will have lived for different longevities. Larger species tend to uh, survive a bit longer. Um, and we know that using uh, what we call comparative analogs, which are modern day animals that have a very similar life habit. Um, and so the, but the specific spe uh, specimen that we found 
It was definitely an adult based on the size of it at a whopping 10 meters. Um, but in terms of the actual age it was when the individual died, uh, when we don't know at the moment. Right, fascinating. <laughs> well, we'll all look forward to the programme tomorrow. BBC Two's BBC Digging for Britain tomorrow at 8pm. And we'll look forward to uh, Dr Nichols when it's unveiled in public so we can all go and have a look at it. Thank you, me too. Very good to talk to you. That's Dr Emma Nichols. She's Senior Curator of Natural Sciences at the Horniman Museum and Gardens. Lovely to talk to you. That's all we've got time for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the Mail Plus app. Every weekday at 5pm you can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pierce. This is The Andrew Pierce Show. I'll be back tomorrow. Have yourselves a great evening and good night. Good night.